Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. I'm John Moorhead. I'm the host of the Multi-Faith Matters Podcast. And whether you're listening today or watching via YouTube, uh, you are welcome. I hope you find this conversation helpful. Uh, I do want to note that we have uh, other podcasts available. Uh, If you came to this uh, podcast through our podcast page, you can see the listing there. You can also find them in video format on the YouTube page. And on our website at Multifaith Matters, you can find a variety of additional resources, recommended books and articles, and we provide consulting services to help evangelicals. And all of this is aimed at helping evangelicals not only have concerns about the Great Commission, about wanting to share their faith with others, but also the Great Commandments, loving God and loving neighbors, and in this context, our multi-faith neighbors. And I do need to mention uh, at the beginning here that we're a nonprofit organization, and if you find this podcast and the work that we're doing helpful, uh, please consider supporting it financially. There is a patrons page where you can support for as little as one, three, or five dollars a month, or you can make a one-time donation to our website. So thank you again for tuning in and listening and watching. My guest today uh, talking about American Buddhism is George Draffin, and I'm going to read a little bit of his bio here so we can get to know him. George is a Seattle-based teacher and coach who is passionately interested in bringing together diverse Buddhist and Taoist practices to benefit people. He began studying Buddhism at the University of Wisconsin in the 1970s. Since then, he's received instruction and participated in many retreats with teachers in the Tibetan, Theravadan, and Zen Buddhist traditions. He's also practiced Taoist philosophy and Qigong for many years. His practice of embodied movement uh, has been deeply influenced by physical labor, mountain hiking, and the gentle therapy of, I hope I don't butcher this, George, Feldenkraus. Is that correct? Yes. It is. Wow, I got it. Uh, George's practice and teaching emphasizes direct awareness of the body is the ground of all experience, relying on compassion, awareness, and skillful means, maintaining intention and flexibility in the midst of daily life activities. Um, Other influences for which George is grateful include the mountains, rivers, and wildlife of the Pacific Northwest, the ecstatic all-embracing empathy of the poet Walt Whitman, and the simple humanity of the poet, uh, hopefully this is correct, Tufu? Tufu, yes. Okay. And the writings of Stoic philosophers who challenge to use our innate abilities to free ourselves from self-imposed confusion and reactions. And lastly, George has been a volunteer with the Northwest Dharma Association for more than 25 years, organizing events and at various times serving on the board and as executive director. Um, I could go on. There's so much that you've done and you're involved in, but George, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, um, you and I were talking a little bit before we started the podcast here. Um, it was our mutual friend, Paul Lewis Metzger at New Wine, New Wineskins of Multnomah that connected us. And uh, we've had some prior conversations about our religious communities and religious diplomacy. And as I was thinking about people to have conversations with, um, you came to mind. And this podcast is designed for evangelicals and conservative Christians to help them uh, see respectful conversations with people in other religious traditions in the hopes that they'll want to do that too. 
And uh, you and Paul have been involved in, in that good work. But to help uh, viewers and listeners get to know you, I'd like to begin my podcast when possible with uh, people's journeys. How did you come to embrace Buddhism? Well, uh, growing up in the, in the 60s and 70s, I encountered it uh, as a teenager uh, through books. Uh, there weren't very many books on Buddhism back then uh, as opposed to now. Uh, but there was something about it that uh, made sense to me as, as a way to look at the world and look at life. And uh, when I went to college, I, I uh, for lack of uh, a practical uh, livelihood <laughs> uh, intention, I, I majored in Buddhist philosophy and it made even more sense. Um, I went to college at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and there was a, one of the first three Tibetan uh, teachers uh, that, that immigrated to the United States was based there. And so I took uh, classes from Geshe Sopa. And uh, at, at that time, uh, you either went into Chinese language or Tibetan language if you wanted to take the, the senior courses. And I tried a little of both and failed utterly. So uh, I not only dropped the major, but I dropped out of college for about 10 or more years. Uh, so the philosophy made sense to me. It wasn't until later, uh, late 20s, early 30s, when I had a few personal crises <laughs> that I actually uh, tried to practice it. And by then there were other teachers and there were American teachers who had been authorized. And so it was a little easier going to actually get involved and be part of a community. So uh, I, I started out with it as an intellectual you know, uh, pursuit and it, it became a personal practice when I needed it. So that just reinforced uh, my interest in the sense it made of, of the world in my life. Yeah, I know there's some debate in among scholars of religion. Do you, do you can personally consider Buddhism a religion, a philosophy, both? What would be your perspective on that? It, it is both. Uh, and if you look at the diversity of Buddhism, not only across Asia, uh, where uh, the, the views and the culture of Buddhism in India is not the same as it is in Thailand, and it's not the same as it is in Japan or Burma or uh, wherever Buddhism goes, and maybe this is true of other religions too, wherever Buddhism goes, it adapts to the culture and the culture changes it. So there may be an essence and depending on who you talk to, Buddhism's got the eightfold path or you know, certain essential features, but it really adapts to the culture and it becomes a religion for many people. And it mixes with the religion of the place. So in Tibet, uh, they were shamanic. Uh, it was a pagan and a, a, you know, a very old religion. And when Buddhism came, it adapted to some of that. And so it, uh, it's most definitely a religion for other people. It's a philosophy. They may never meditate. In fact, there's traditions of Buddhism where meditation is not the norm. Uh, 
uh, it's it's a way of, it's an ethical way of living it's a philosophical view it's an intellectual pursuit or there's devotion and ritual and so it, not only within the different cultures but i think for each practitioner uh, it's more or less a religion with some uh, supernatural features it's a philosophical tradition that, that's mainly intellectual uh, so it, it really varies but uh, anybody says, you know, Buddhism is this and not that, then uh, you probably have the same problem in Christianity. Uh, you know, you can't sum it up in, in one thing and say it's this, not that. It, it depends on who's uh, practicing it. Yeah, I think there might be a little more willingness to embrace that diversity of expression, at, le at least in Protestantism and probably I think also in Catholicism, there's more of a a tendency to say, no, 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 th this is the essence. And if you go beyond that, then, you know, it, it, it's a problematic form of Christianity. So, well, Buddhism, uh, some uh, Buddhists do that too. Uh, there, there you go. <laughs> uh, there's, there's uh, there are fundamentalist Buddhists who say, you know, these texts and these practices are Buddhist and those other things that you know, the, the people in such and such a country do is not Buddhism. It's been perverted. Uh, there's, there are fundamentalist Buddhists as well. But the more I uh, study it and, and the more I look at the different uh, cultural manifestations of it, I see some common elements. Uh, the ethics, uh, the insight meditation, the uh, the way of approaching things is common across them, but the, but the way it manifests and the way it's practiced and the way it's talked about is is very different. And there are people who say, no, it's this one and not that one. To me, that doesn't, it, 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 it belies uh, credibility or historical uh, f uh, facts. Uh, so um, I guess I'm just another Buddhist, and I say <laughs> Buddhism is a religion and a philosophy, uh, and it's many things, and that's just my take. Uh, other yeah. people will <laughs> disagree and, and say, uh, you know, those Tibetans, when they, they mixed in the, the shamanic elements, uh, they ruined it, or the such and such, and it still goes on today. Uh, we bring, uh, you know, uh, health professionals and scientists have tried to isolate, uh, still working on it, isolating how uh, mindfulness works and what it does to the brain and nervous system and, and how it changes your biochemistry. And there are uh, quite a few Buddhists that say that it's a terrible thing to do and that you're trying to lift it out of uh, the context that it that it was arose in and that it's not the real thing, but uh, it's hard to argue with biochemistry and, and uh, you know, brain science so yeah it does get a little messy i mean you have similar uh debates and discussions uh, about yoga uh can it be you know extracted or practiced outside of its hindu context is it inherently religious these kinds of things so i just think this illustrates that this is uh i think religion as a category we try and make it very neat we define it and but it's really it's really uh, something that we're imposing on the world that could be kind of messy and difficult to, to sort out. So you and I, through this conversation, we're just doing our best to try and <laughs> help each other understand a messy process. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm trying to, uh, through the Northwest Dharma Association, we're, 
we're trying to take each of the different traditions and lineages uh, at, at face value and regard them as legitimate uh, religions or philosophies or ways of life uh, that are practiced by people for 2,500 years. And so if you start with that uh, premise that, uh, that a religion or a way of life or a, an, an ethical uh, set of principles that somebody practices and holds uh, you know, dear to their life and, and central to the way they see the world, if you take that as legitimate, uh, then you have to look a little deeper at, at the surface differences in the way the language people use and the way they describe things and actually look at, at what uh, the practice does for someone. And to me, uh, uh, religion or spirituality, again, the language is kind of uh, fuzzy, but to me, the central part of it is does it change the way you look at the world and treat other people? Uh, does it change your way of life? And, and does it uh, begin to bring other people uh, to the same level of importance as yourself? Uh, that, that's what's authentic uh, religion to me and whether it, it's Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever. Uh, if it does that, if it stretches us beyond ourself, then it's legitimate and it's authentic and, and the expressions of it and the, and the way it's practiced is to be you know, understood rather than kind of taken apart and said, you know, judged as legitimate or not. I note in your bio that in addition to Buddhism, um, there's also uh, some Taoism that's uh, mentioned in there. How does that how does that complement? Does it complement? Is it secondary? How would you describe the relationship between your Buddhist practice and Taoism? It's very complementary, and there's actually a lot of uh, parallels. Uh, Taoism uh, emerged as one of the indigenous religions or philosophies of China uh, about the same time as Buddhism was arising in India. And uh, when Buddhism went to China, uh, the, the Indian Buddhism was combined with the Chinese Taoism uh, and they came up with Zen. Uh, if you look at Zen, uh, a lot of the literature and a lot of the practices are quite Taoist. So Taoism is a really old, it was, you know, they began to write about it in the centuries uh, before the current era, but uh, it's really old. Uh, it's it's uh, shamanic. It's matrilineal. It's earth-based. It's looking at the elements. It's uh, trying to understand how nature works and then align uh, humans with natural laws and natural energies. And uh, it it has its own complexities and its own uh, practices, but. But the original Lao Tzu, the Tao Te Ching, which many people have read, and, and Zhuangzi, which is a wonderful collection of uh, stories and jokes and puns and, and uh, teaching stories, uh, those arose around three or 400 BC and uh, formed the basis of philosophical uh, Taoism. 
Taoism also uh, kind of grew up and uh, furthered the practice of Tai Chi and Qigong, which is the, the movement, mindful movement and energy practices. Uh, and so they're kind of uh, intertwined from the beginning, but the Tai Chi is also really helpful if you do a lot of sitting meditation, which isn't actually very good for the body. <laughs> the human body isn't meant to sit still for 45 minutes or an hour at a time. And uh, on retreat, I uh, was working with a teacher who decided that walking meditation was a lot of trouble to get to everybody stand up, put on their shoes, file out of the meditation hall outside. And by the time you did that, uh, time had passed and everybody was all uh, disturbed. So we started standing up right in front of the meditation bench and and doing uh, Tai Chi right there. And it was uh, uh, more helpful than walking meditation. Well, I started doing more and more of that. And then I discovered that uh, in teaching meditation, one of the best ways to teach someone to sit still is to teach them Tai Chi first. Uh, they get grounded in the body, they connect with their breath, uh, they uh, get some flexibility and some stretching, and then when they sit down to meditate, they actually feel like sitting down and being grounded and resting, whereas a lot of people, when they try to meditate, they just get more and more tense. And so if you want to teach somebody how to do sitting meditation, teach them Tai Chi first. So very complimentary. And I think very, uh, aside from the health and uh, flexibility and, and uh, there's studies now even showing that people are happier doing Tai Chi, uh, going back again to the, the physiology and the biochemistry of it. So. It, it's been very helpful to me and I, I might skip a day of meditation, but I hardly ever skip a day of Tai Chi. <laughs> Can you help us a little bit with the history? Um, how did uh, Buddhism come to America? Was it during the, the 1960s with the increase in, in immigration or, or were there other factors involved? It was actually older. Uh, uh, the, the Japanese that moved to <clears throat> Hawaii in the 1800s, a lot of them to work in the plantations, uh, brought Pure Land Buddhism from Japan. Uh, and as soon as there was immigration into the U.S. from Asians, whether Chinese or Japanese or other, uh, they brought Buddhism with them. So it's been in America for well over 100 years. Uh, the oldest temple in Seattle is about 115 years old, I think, wow. the Seattle Betsuan. So it's been around, but it was an immigrant religion. And of course, most Americans, uh, you know, Euro-Americans weren't very interested or didn't have the opportunity to actually learn anything about it. But in the 1930s, 1940s, there were several Asian scholars, D.T. Suzuki and others that came and spent time in America and started writing the first books in English uh, that uh, could make it more accessible. And so it, it built from there. In the 50s, uh, the, the beat uh, writers, uh, popularized it. Alan Watts, uh, who was an Episcopalian minister, uh, was a Taoist and Buddhist, and he popularized it. And then in the 60s, there was uh, 
uh, teachers from Japan, China, uh, Tibet, and uh, Sri Lanka, other countries, uh, came here and actually established centers. So by the 60s and 70s, you could actually train in it. And uh, so we, uh, people my age uh, tend to think of the 60s and 70s as kind of the first generation, but it was uh, 100 years old by then. It's just that it was the first generation where we could actually get access to it and get uh, thorough training. And since then, uh, even in the 25 years I've worked with the Dharma Association, uh, it, it's just exploded in, in uh, popularity, in access, in the number of translations and uh, books that are written. And uh, it's now well beyond the kind of Asian cultural religious uh, traditions uh, to a scientific study of meditation and uh, what it does uh, in an objective sense. So it's it's definitely it started out small as an immigrant uh, religion and, uh, and now is is mainstream. Many hospitals. Uh, we'll teach mindfulness-based stress reduction for chronic pain that drugs just can't uh, work with. And uh, public schools are teaching mindfulness meditation because it calms kids down and gets them uh, focused and gets them able to do some, you know, deliberate uh, work, uh, helps learning, uh, makes you more intelligent when you've got uh, oxygen in your brain. and. <laughs> So it's, it's uh, even in the last 10 years, it's really uh, expanded. Oxygen in the brain is always a good thing. So, that's <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's interesting and good to know about the, the, the longer history in America than, than I was aware of. Um, what are some of the major expressions of Buddhism in America that uh, listeners ought to be aware of that they might run into? Well, it's, it's often said that there's uh, insight. Uh, Buddhism comes in, in uh, three or four forms, like insight meditation or uh, Tibetan meditation or Zen meditation. And these, again, are just kind of uh, shorthand and really uh, oversimplified uh, based on the, the traditions that have the most centers or have been around the longest but if you look at all the countries in Asia, uh, and then you look at the traditions within those countries, uh, you end up with more of a view uh, kind of like uh, Christianity where there's, you could break it into uh, Catholic and Protestant and evangelical. But then if you look within each of those, uh, and maybe even more so in Buddhism, uh, I, I mentioned how uh, Taoism had affected Buddhism in, in China. But you take uh, Indian Buddhism, you add in some Taoism, and you get Zen. Well, Zen was often practiced alongside Pure Land Buddhism, which is a very devotional, not very much meditation, a little bit of chanting maybe, or singing, but uh, it's uh, mostly devotional, and it's mostly uh, community-based. So uh, it's not so much insight meditation as just the understanding that uh, other people are at least as important as you are, 
and that community is, is more important than any individual's preferences or prejudice. And so you just serve other people and that's the practice. And uh, those who like to meditate and, and get into extraordinary mental states will say, well, that's not much of a practice. Well, try it, <laughs> uh, you know, put, put uh, the other person first all the time put your family and community ahead of your your own preferences all the time it's it's a practice and it changes the way you you view things and it changes the way you uh, have to live so and i think i mentioned uh six ways of being religious uh, a textbook mm -hmm. by dale cannon uh, and he he's uh, his two case studies are Christianity and Buddhism, but he brings in a lot of other religions too. And and his thesis is that there are six ways of being religious, and they range from a shamanic religion where you're channeling supernatural powers to uh, mystical or meditation, uh, mystical quest. Uh, You've got uh, devotion as a way of being religious. You've got reasoned inquiry and philosophy as a way of being religious. Uh, and so uh, he says that uh, any uh, developed religion, any authentic religion is actually gonna have all six of these ways. And sometimes a, a, a lineage or a tradition uh, practices one more than the other but if you really study it, uh, there'll be at least two or three. And uh, the larger, uh, more developed uh, traditions actually have all six. And so uh, maybe an easier way to think about it is your mind. So that would be meditation and philosophy and, and then your heart, which is devotion and uh, ritual is, is another of the six and right action, uh, either individual or social. And so our behavior and our emotions and our mind are all involved. And so whether you're looking at Zen, uh, which says uh, we don't, one of their uh, tropes is that they don't uh, rely on uh, texts. So there are many Zen stories of how they tried to understand a, a text and got frustrated and just uh, threw it out or burned it up. And they said, I'm not gonna rely on a text. I'm gonna you know, realize this in my own experience. Uh, but they also bow, they also ring bells. They also have uh, revere and respect and follow a lineage of teachers down through the centuries. So all of the uh, traditions have these different aspects of mind and heart and behavior. And uh, there's kind of infinite varieties uh, within each of those. But again, if, we're, if, if we look at religion as something that uh, changes how I experience and uh, how I act, then uh, to be uh, genuine and long lasting, it's got involved the head and heart and the behavior of the way of life. My assumption is that uh, most, uh, if not all, of the evangelical viewers and listeners uh, will have very little, if any, knowledge of Buddhism and uh, maybe a lot of stereotypes. Can you kind of summarize? I know there's a wide variety of tra traditions. You've touched on some of that. But what are some of the essential? Well, what's the history? How did Buddhism arise? And then what are some of the essential practices and beliefs associated with it? 
it it the Buddha Shakyamuni, the the original or the well, uh, other traditions say there were Buddhas before him, but the the historical Buddha uh, lived in the fifth century B.C. in India, which at that time uh, was uh, there were different uh, kingdoms, different uh, kind of state size uh, kingdoms. They also had the beginnings of the caste system already, and the Buddha was born into the uh, military class uh, that was beginning to be a merchant class uh, and uh, was quite wealthy. And uh, he was sheltered uh, as a boy. And then he discovered uh, illness and he saw a corpse and he discovered that there was suffering in the world. <laughs> and he left his privileged position and went uh, into the forest uh, with the yogis uh, and uh, looked for truth and the end of suffering. Well, India, excuse me, uh, India at that time uh, was polytheistic. They had lots of gods and goddesses. And uh, he came uh, through his own practice to think that maybe the gods and goddesses were just other beings and they weren't absolute and that uh, he had to do uh, something himself, uh, that he couldn't rely on uh, luck or good fortune or the grace of uh, gods and goddesses. And he created what was actually uh, is actually a, a very rational system. So the four noble truths, the first thing he taught was that uh, suffering exists, suffering arises. And uh, there is suffering in life, you can't, <laughs> you can't stop it. Uh, the cause of it is uh, craving is uh, tanha in Sanskrit is uh, the kind of craving if you drink salt water, you just get thirstier. Uh, the, the kind of craving that you can't uh, satisfy. Uh, craving is the cause of suffering. Uh, that's actually shorthand. Uh, the craving is actually caused by confusion. So you're confused if you drink salt water, uh, hoping to get over your thirst. Uh, so uh, confusion causes craving, it causes hatred, it causes jealousy, it causes pride. We don't understand ourselves or the way uh, things actually are. And so we have these reactive emotions. We don't understand the true causes of happiness and unhappiness. So the third noble truth is that uh, this kind of confusion can uh, come to an end. And the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path uh, to, to bring that kind of confusion and suffering to an end. And the eightfold path uh, goes through uh, view, the way you see things, is it accurate or not? Uh, your intentions or your resolve, uh, is that aligned with the way things are? And then it has several about uh, speech, action, livelihood, and ethical behavior. So about half of the eightfold path is about how you behave. And then uh, the seventh and eighth are uh, mindfulness and and meditation. And so it's a way of life. And there are 
many people who who don't want anything to do with Asian history or culture, but have discovered in Buddhism uh, a way of clarifying your own experience and the nature of the world and uh, approaching life in a way that uh, is conducive to happiness and skill and uh, harmony with other people. And so there's, there's lots of people who don't care about the origins of it and the religious aspects, but they see something, it's almost akin to stoicism so the Stoics came up about the same time, several centuries before the current era, and they arose in, in Rome and Greece that had a polytheistic uh, set of gods and goddesses and, and different ways of trying to appeal to them and get their aid. And, and the Stoics said, well, maybe. Uh, they took a rather agnostic view about it, but they also uh, said there are some things we can do ourselves and even if we're going to appeal for the help of supernatural forces or supernatural beings, uh, we need to do some things ourselves. Isn't there a Christian, uh, you know, a God helps those who help themselves or something like that? Uh, it, I can't do whatever I want and behave however I want and be as confused as I want and then expect someone else to help me. <laughs> So uh, you can be a Stoic and a Christian. You can also be a, a Buddhist and a Christian in that sense, where uh, Buddhism is about uh, this life and, and how I see and, and behave. And so it, it's not incompatible with other religions. Uh, it does uh, put the responsibility and the test of experience uh, on oneself. Uh, one, has to take responsibility and one has to try to see things accurately. Uh, there's a famous uh, poem, uh, poet Shantideva who wrote an epic poem on uh, the Bodhisattva way of life. And uh, one of his verses is, uh, we, we all love, uh, we all want happiness, but we keep doing the things that bring us unhappiness. <laughs> And so that's, that's what the essence of Buddhism is trying to get at. Uh, there, there is cause and effect. And we don't expect miracles or we don't rely on miracles. There may be miracles, but uh, we can't count on them. Like, I'm not going to go to work, but, you know, I want to be rich. Uh, well, <laughs> cause and effect uh, demands that I be clear about what I'm experiencing and, and be clear about... Uh, the true causes of happiness and unhappiness and harmony and discord. It, it's up to me. That, that's helpful. I, I want to comment. You, you mentioned uh, the phenomenon of, of dual or, or multiple religious identities. And I think that that is happening more and more. People are reporting that they're not just identifying with one religious tradition. They might hold, you know, to two or more than ones, so you'll have folks who would say that they're they're Buddhist Christian or Christian Buddhist. I think from the conservative Christian perspective, they're probably far less comfortable with that than maybe uh, you would be within the Buddhist uh, community because of your view of it as a religion and philosophy. A lot of there, there's a, one of the things I've discovered in my research is there's a fear amongst conservative Christians, particularly evangelicals, about syncretism what they would consider the inappropriate blending of different religious traditions so that one compromises the other. 
And so um, I don't want us to go off on a tangent, just to note that there, there are differences between our traditions and in, in terms of how they would uh, understand that. But at the same time, I think we need to recognize that increasingly that's taking place with uh, folks kind of viewing religion more as a smorgasbord of options that one has rather than, you know, fidelity to just one religious tradition. I think we're going to see that more and more. Any follow-up comments on that? Well, that, I think that is a, uh, it can be a problem. Um, I think I'm going to try to, my, uh, the sun is coming through the window. There we go. Uh, I think it can be a problem either way. If, uh, if you just go from one religion or one philosophy or one uh, kind of devotion or meditation to the next and never stick to it and let it change you, uh, then it may just be avoidance and, uh, and uh, again, confusion about uh, how things work. There's also a problem, I think, if if you stay within a tradition and don't know or care or learn anything about other traditions, not only is there a danger of uh, misunderstanding or being biased or being self-centered, uh, but there's there's a danger of of uh, conflict with other people, and so. When I discovered Pure Land Buddhism, uh, which is a very devotional, very different than the kind of uh, self-disciplined uh, effort that I've been describing in meditation and, and philosophy, uh, that says uh, the universe is compassionate, the universe is good, and that uh, my uh, foibles and my uh, inability to understand everything is inherent. Uh, I can't lift myself by my bootstraps. And so I'm just going to uh, be, uh, I'm going to surrender to the way the world is. And I'm going to trust uh, that uh, it's a compassionate universe. And I'm going to put other people first. And I'm going to stop worrying about my own advancement and enlightenment. When I discovered that there was a, a tradition of Buddhism like that, it sure reminded me of growing up as an Episcopalian uh, in a cathedral uh, in the Midwest uh, that had lots of incense and lights and ritual and part of it was done in Latin and I was a uh, you know, altar boy uh, and wearing a, a, a robe and everything and, and so uh, it it brought me back to my original uh, sense of what religion was. And I, it, it helped me to understand what the attraction is. It helped me to understand what the power of devotion is. And so, uh, you know, should I have stayed Episcopalian and never learned about Buddhism? Or once I had converted to Buddhism, should I have never, you know, thought about uh, the parallels with Episcopalian? So I, I think it's a, it's a danger either way. Uh, if we think we're self-contained and we don't need to learn anything about other people, <laughs> then that, that leads to something. And if we just uh, dance around and think we don't need to have any discipline or hold ourselves accountable or or go
go through a spiritual path ourselves, then that leads to problems too. And it, like all of these things, it, it's not so simple as to say, well, you know, you should do this or you should do that. There are plenty of people in every religion that say uh, their own understanding and their own uh, sincere practice was really enhanced by seeing how someone else practiced their religion. Doesn't mean you adopt it or that you get confused. You may actually get clearer about what you're doing and what's important and why you practice the way you do. But the, the great multi-faith uh, you know, leaders and people that have inspired over the centuries have, have uh, respected other religions in Tibet in the 1800s, uh, as Tibet was about to be destroyed by colonial powers and the fact that it was sandwiched between China and India, uh, but uh, on the verge of the destruction of old Tibet, uh, there were several decades where the different lineages in Tibet said, let's stop debating and let's stop uh, being isolated from each other. Let's learn about each other's traditions. We keep our own. We don't mush them all together and make a, a, a mess out of it. Let's keep our own traditions, but let's learn about the others and understand where they're coming from and respect those. And so this remay or uh, without boundaries movement uh, actually resulted in uh, the writing down and the collection and, and the encyclopedia understanding of uh, 1500 years of Tibetan religion uh, right before everything was destroyed. It, it basically saved uh, Tibetan Buddhism in all its diversity because these leaders said, you know, this, this isolation, uh, it can't go any further. We have to go back and understand what we have in common as well as, as what we have in, in difference. And so they, they didn't uh, create a, a big mishmash. They, they uh, illuminated their own tradition by understanding other people's. I, I, one of the things I appreciate, appreciate about Buddhism is that idea of uh, recognizing suffering. I think that's something that Christians recognize too, although we would understand the remedy to be different, but not only is there suffering, there's also misunderstanding. What are, what kinds of stereotypes and misunderstandings do you run into that Christians have about Buddhism? And do you find any in the Buddhist community about Christianity? Oh, yes. <laughs> where, where do we start? Uh, I, I think a lot of Christians see, well, I won't even say Christians. I'll just say Americans because uh, so many Americans don't really have any religion now, but uh, I would say a, a big misunderstanding about Buddhism is that uh, it, it, people don't even know the difference between Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Sikhs, Muslim, like anybody that's vaguely uh, Asian or has some kind of uh, Asian clothing on is a this or a that. So uh, there's that misunderstanding. Uh, anything that's foreign, uh, I mean, Buddhists have been attacked uh, because people thought they were Muslims. So, uh, because they wore a robe or something. Uh, so there's, there's a basic uh, lack of understanding about uh, Buddhism as a religion. 
and as a cultural phenomenon. There's also, I think, a lot of people uh, see uh, a Buddhist bow to a statue of the Buddha, and they think, oh, it's uh, idolatry. Well, it's no more idolatry than kneeling when you go into a church. <laughs> Uh, there's, there's, uh, you know, this, a Buddhist knows that the statue is just made out of metal or wood. Uh, there's nothing magical in that object, except that it's a symbol <laughs> of, of the path and the religion and the lineage uh, and the teachers. Uh, so it, it's not uh, pagan, it's not uh, idolatry, uh, it's not superstitious. Uh, and, and that there's a huge difference. Uh, not all Buddhists believe in reincarnation. Reincarnation came out of a Hindu. The, the Buddha was, was a Hindu. Well, not even Hindu, pre-Hindu, because Hindu and Buddhism kind of came up together uh, in the current era. But the Vedic and Upanishad, the pre-Hindu uh, religion, indigenous religion, uh, believed in reincarnation. So it's kind of like Jesus being a Jew. Uh, he reformed uh, Judaism or made some changes and it became Christianity. But the Buddha was, a, was an Indian, not a Buddhist. <laughs> he created uh, or, or inspired what, what came. But, but uh, if you go to China or Japan, there's very little focus on the afterlife and reincarnation. Very different. A worldview that came out of their own indigenous. So uh, just like you couldn't uh, make assumptions about evangelicals by watching a, a Catholic mass, uh, there's different kinds of Buddhism and they, they can't all be uh, conflated. Uh, on, the, on the other side, a Buddhist misunderstanding Christians, well, yes. uh, if you're an Asian Buddhist and were born that way, then uh, I imagine you see Christianity, uh, you know, Europeans are Christian. That's what a Christian is, a European, right? If you're Asian. But if you're a convert Buddhist like me, uh, we may have, uh, you know, I was raised as an Episcopalian, but by the time I was a teenager, I was more interested in Buddhism. So. I imagine I have a kind of an adolescent view of, of uh, Christianity. <laughs> I've tried to remedy that by, by studying and, and talking with people, but I'll, ne I'll probably never understand it again as an insider. So uh, I'm a little fuzzy on the different uh, Protestant uh, traditions and what the differences and similarities are. I'm a little fuzzy on what evangelicalism is. And of course, it all gets filtered through culture. So I think uh, some of us may think of evangelicalism as, as a political movement, right. because that's what's happened in the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, we don't understand where it came from, what inspired it, what the central uh, uh, goals or orientation are. We, we, we think of it as uh, what uh, the people with uh, public... Uh, you know, microphone uh, say. And so, again, I think uh, it, it, we, we can't get anywhere <laughs> as a culture or as a world uh, or even as a particular religion 
unless we have enough respect for other people's path <laughs> to try to actually understand it rather than what we see filtered through the media or filtered through the loudest voices. Uh, that, that, that ending of what you just said there leads naturally to, as our time begins to draw to a close, we have our differences. We're not saying that Buddhism is the same as Christianity. We can say that there are some areas where we might have some agreement, but so we're not compromising. But in spite of those differences, we can work together to make our communities a better place. Do you have any thoughts on how neighborly minded Buddhists and evangelicals might come together uh, to work for the common good of not only the neighborhood, but the country? Well, uh, I think by approaching <laughs> your neighbor and, and talking, uh, learning more about uh, where they're coming from and, and why they do what they do, uh, it's not easy to do. And, and you can't do it by having one conversation or, you know, I could, I could go uh, sit in a, a church service and then come out thinking I, I understood. But of course, I, all I'm doing is, is just being exposed a little bit and then then the inquiry and the, the understanding continues but uh, since there are so many differences even within buddhism or within evangelicals uh, we can't even say uh, we understand our own tradition completely uh, if only because they keep evolving and growing but there are some similarities. I think the golden rule, uh, is virtually every religion and even the secular philosophies like uh, Stoicism, virtually every spiritual path has some version of the golden rule. And some of them, uh, maybe all of them, uh, for the serious practitioner will, will go even further. Not, not only you know, are others equal to you, but uh, you should exchange yourself for others and you should put others first. Every spiritual tradition says that. And if that's the case, then I think we can trust, you know, to reach out across the aisle and, and go into each other's churches or temples and actually have a dialogue without fear that we're gonna lose the essence of our, of our path or that we're gonna compromise the integrity. It's a question of understanding how everybody else comes to that golden rule. No, I, nobody argues against the golden rule. Right, right. Nobody, nobody argues against prohibitions on, on murder and, you know, stealing and adultery. Every religion has a version of those. And so I, I think despite the diversity of how we express or follow that, uh, it, the essence is, is the same. We're human and we live in a world that is infinitely larger than our little brains and uh, we're social creatures that need to uh, interact and, and get along and be supported by and, and support each other. And if you start from there, then everything else is uh, details. Yeah, I would uh, draw uh, the attention to the work uh, in your neck of the woods that, uh, again, Paul Lewis Metzger of New Wine, New Wineskins is doing. For many years, they have been uh, participating in uh, potlucks with uh, members of the Dharma Reign Zen Buddhist community. And uh, they can, folks can, who are interested in that can find a case study 
on our website uh, with the example of other evangelical churches that are relating to religious others in their community in, in neighborly ways. And I think there was even an article in Tricycle uh, that focused on these, uh, these potlucks that were going on. So that, that's a marvelous example of Christians and Buddhists getting together without compromise in integrity uh, and having relationships and conversations to, to make their communities a better place. So it, it certainly can be done. We just need more of it. Yeah, we, I think we need to get out of our, uh, well, it, it's difficult. People are busy and there is the, the need to understand one's own tradition and, and to follow it faithfully. And for uh, most of us, maybe at times all of us, uh, that, that's the most we can manage. And yet again, I, I, uh, I, I think one's own tradition can be illuminated by dialogue with others. Yeah, you and I were talking before we started the podcast about one. I think one of the, you said one of the great challenges in your work with Buddhists is they just don't have the interest. They're focused on their own religious practices and community. And it's the same thing, I think, in evangelicalism and others where we only have so much time in life, we're busy, and we're all focused on our own communities, our own religious practice. However, I think you and I would both make the argument that while that's important, it's also important to try and understand the religious others, if you will, because our, our disagreements in culture through politics over some of the most important questions of our day are many times informed by our religious traditions and our religious community. So for no other reason, we need to understand why our neighbors view the same issues so differently and uh, why we disagree so passionately so that we can at least disagree in a more informed and respectful kind of way. So there are good incentives for us trying to make time to understand and talk to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, George, do you have anything else as we draw to a close, any burning thing you would like to communicate? I know it's a huge subject matter. We've only been able to scratch the surface. Well, no, I, I just would like to thank you for inviting me. And uh, it's this conversation and the ones we've had uh, previously and the conversations I've had with Paul Metzger have been very helpful. Uh, and I, I'm i inching uh, ever so slowly toward a, a more uh, ecumenical, my, my work with the Northwest Dharma Association has been primarily to support the particular Buddhist traditions and temples and centers across the Northwest. So that, that's the mission. But I, I also think uh, in order to do that, in order to support the Buddhists, uh, we need to do some more interfaith and multi-faith work uh, outside our own community because Otherwise, we're kind of training to be isolated and pretending that uh, the, the diverse and uh, confusing world isn't uh, all around us. And so uh, I, I, I just want to thank you and, and Paul and, and others for uh, helping us uh, stretch a little bit more. I, I think it'll benefit ourselves as well as others. So. No, I appreciate you carving the time. I wish we would have done it sooner, but I'm glad we did it. And hopefully this will, our conversation here, maybe that'll rekindle some additional thought about how we can uh, do more together 
uh, in the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere between Buddhists and evangelicals. So uh, I thank you as well for making the time. Uh, my guest has been George Draffin. I will have his bio in the program notes and some links where you can uh, get in touch with his work. And again, uh, we hope you find this uh, podcast helpful. Please take a look at the other podcasts there. Uh, give us a, a positive rating. Subscribe on the YouTube page. And once again, we appreciate your financial support that makes uh, the podcast and the work of Multi-Faith Matters possible. I'm the host, John Moorhead, and we will see you on the next podcast.